All right, thanks, Sean. We are in the letter of 1 Corinthians, continuing on there. Uh, Thanks to Jonathan Brood last week for filling in. Uh, His sermon actually connects very well with this one. So glad for that. Thanks, Jonathan. All right, so kids, first I want to start with you. If I could have your attention. Do you ever argue with your brothers and or sisters about which one of you is better at something? Which one's faster or which one can do math better or anything like that? You guys ever do that? No? Yeah? Emmy's on us. That's good. Dean, you? Yeah, maybe. Dean has the best tie this morning. That's true. Dean wins. All right, so you compare yourself because you want to come out ahead, right? You, you want to be seen as better. You want maybe mom and dad to be more proud of you. You want attention or... On the opposite, if you realize that you're not better, you can get really envious and hope that the other one really fails or falls on their face so that you can get better. Now, that kind of behavior that happens in your homes and in your marriages and in your workplace is what defined this church. This church was all of that kind of petty rivalry and conflict and division and and envy. Um... They were very proud. They were so full of themselves that they fought just about over everything. And we've seen that in the letter that, or in the section that we've been in. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 1, Paul uh, says there, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and all the matters about which they wrote were matters that they were dividing over, fighting over, envious of each other over. Uh, The first in chapter 7 was about marriage. And then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, it was all about food and who could eat what. And, and then in chapter 11, they were fighting in worship between men and women. And then, uh, as we preached the last couple weeks, they were fighting over Lord's Supper. They were dividing over the Lord's Supper. And now Paul continues in chapter 12, still focusing on corporate worship, on the gathering of Sabbath worship. Uh, they were fighting over who had the better spiritual gifts. Who, who was more gifted and whose gifts were more important than other gifts. And so Paul spends the next three chapters trying to bring some gospel love and sanity to their dividing over who had the better gifts. Right. And so uh, their church resembled your home sometimes. That's what was defining their church. Now, Paul still calls them a church. Uh, He still says in the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 that they were sanctified. Uh, And and so this is a church of Christ. This is the church of the apostles. So Paul still loves them. Now, can I ask you guys something? When you're fighting in your home as siblings, kids, who who has God put there to deal with the fighting and to help you grow out of it? Who has God placed in your home to discipline your fighting and then to help you mature out of it? Yeah, dad and mom, right? And so the Apostle Paul is that. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says that he's been called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So God has placed Paul as a sort of father in that church to deal with their sin. Paul's been sent with the authority of God, just like your father, just like your mother, 
to love the church by disciplining her sins so that she might become more mature and more spiritual. And so that's what we want to have happen here. We want God to use the preaching of his word in fatherly love and discipline to help us identify where we're out of step, sinning against God, that we might mature in it. So let me read, I'm just going to read the first three verses. I wanted to set this aside, or apart from the rest, and then next week we'll do 4 to 11, but uh, verses 1 to 3 today of chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, you'll notice on spiritual gifts there, there's a little number probably, and then down in the footnotes it'll say, or spiritual persons, or just spiritual. We'll get to that in a moment, but just note that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we know that Those are blessed. Those find their happiness in you who walk in repentance in accord with your law, who keep your testimonies and seek after you with their whole hearts. And so God, teach us that we might be more steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then we won't be put to shame having our eyes fixed on your commandments. And so God, give us, your people, that kind of attention to your word now that we might praise you with upright hearts and keep your statutes. And so, God, don't forsake us now. Send your spirit to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, again, this text takes place in this larger context. It starts in chapter 7 and goes all the way through chapter 14. In chapter 11, Paul uh, began focusing on the actual worshiping of the church, the gathering of the local church on Sunday to worship the Lord. They had three areas of division that Paul addresses in this. The first was the issue of men and women. So we, there, Paul focused on head coverings, which we did several months ago. Second, they were dividing in the Lord's Supper. We focused on the last several weeks. And now in these next three chapters, it's all about the division in the local church over whose gifts were better. And the gift that they were elevating above all other gifts was, does anybody know? Tongues. All right. They were dividing over the gifts of tongues, that those who spoke in the gifts of, had the gifts of tongues were the spiritual ninjas and everybody else was just like yellow belts or something. And so they, they were very proud and conceited over this. Now they took that understanding of the preeminence of tongues from their pagan background. Pagan worship always included um, the one leading the worship, reaching this spiritual ecstatic state, and then beginning to speak ecstatic utterances of spiritual different languages that they thought came from the gods. And so the problem in Corinth is that they were taking their cue not from Scripture, but from the world. And so that's why Paul in verse 2 reminds them of their pagan backgrounds. But we'll get to more of that later. Now, let me begin 
uh, with something that I hope isn't irritating you but has the potential to. And so I'm trying to love you now by giving you a little warning that what comes next may grate on you. You'll notice in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. And he doesn't gasp, include the fairer sex there. He just says brothers. In the Greek, he just has one word there, brothers. And you'll note a little footnote there. In mine, it has the number 12. And if you go down, it says, or brothers and sisters. That isn't so. In the original language, it just said brothers. And this occurs not infrequently in the Bible, where the Holy Spirit, in addressing issues in the church, just addresses the males. Why? Why? Well, I think in order to get a good understanding of it, you got to go back to Genesis. The garden, the first creation of man and then woman from man and woman to be the man's helpmate. When God created Adam, he gave Adam the charge to work and keep the garden. What is keeping? Keeping is watching over the safety and peace of the family, of the workplace, of the society, of the worship. Adam and all men in Adam are given the charge to make sure that things are functioning according to God's law, that when there's division, that the men deal with it, that they bring peace there. Um, and, And so I was taught that when I come home from work, Sometimes I'm coming home to chaos, right? We homeschool, and so sometimes there's even more of that because mom has been with the kids all day, and she's been teacher and mom, and it's not happy. And I was taught that it's my job to try to come home and bring some peace, give mom a break, deal with the problems, and try to restore some Good times. So does that give you a sense of why Paul's addressing here just the brothers and not the sisters? Because there was conflict in the church. There was division. There was enmities and hatreds and little warring factions. And whose job is it given by God Almighty to deal with it? It's the men. It's the brothers. Because when... Adam and Eve sinned, and God came into the garden. Who did God address? Adam. And who did Adam blame? Eve. And what would happen if God addressed here the brothers and the sisters and didn't speak directly to the men? What would happen? the men would be all too happy to blame the women and sit back and let them take care of it. Because we're prone as men, given the charge to watch over and keep, we're prone to step back if we think somebody else is going to fill in the gap. This is a ditch that men often drive into. 
And so Paul deals directly with the men. That's why this is often seen in Scripture. This isn't a patriarchal society that demeans women and is misogynistic and thank God we've grown out of that. And so now we put little footnotes in our Bible to make sure that none of the women are offended and it says brothers and sisters. So we shouldn't be offended by that. Gals, women, you shouldn't be offended by that. God is loving you by calling the men to make sure that the, he- the health and happiness and peace of the church is here. So let me manage and watch it over. That's what's going on here. So let me apply that real quick. We have little boys and little girls in my household, and rarely the boy and a boy and a, and a girl will get in a fight. It happens very rarely in my household. Quarterly. Being facetious there. Um, and Sometimes my sons get mad at me because I'll deal with them mainly and not their sisters. I, I go to the boy and I deal with what he's done to his sister and his responsibility to take care of it. And inevitably, one of my sons will say, Dad, what about her? What about Eve? Why am I dealing directly with his son? Because he is responsible for the the situation primarily. He might not have the only sin in it. I'll discipline my daughter's sin, but we gotta, I gotta, we gotta teach the boys to take responsibility and make sure that they take the initiative to bring it back to peace and to ask for forgiveness, that they take the lead, that they go first, even if she started it, because they read Genesis 3, 2. That's what Paul's doing here. That's why he has brothers, So I hope that wasn't too irritating. I hope that's helpful. So we don't want to soften Scripture. Men, you shouldn't feel guilty for that. Men are absolutely vital and needed in the church. Uh, And I think, largely, our church gets this. I'm, I'm really glad for it, but it's really easy to lose it in this day. And the way you lose it is by putting a little footnote in it that makes sure that everybody's okay, that you do include the sisters here. Because that's not what the Holy Spirit inspired in this text. And so men, good job, but keep it up. You are, when you're here at Awana on Pine Grove Wednesdays, responsible for the safety and peace and happiness of everybody here. It's your job. And so you're doing that, keep it up in your home and and everywhere. So what is Paul doing in these three verses? The main thing, if I can just get you to see big picture, the main thing is he's just humbling their pride. Wherever you see conflict, there's always pride. Wherever you see infighting and division, there's there's always pride. There's always somebody or, or, or some people who won't turn the other cheek, who demand that their rights be met, who think more highly of themselves than others, who aren't in it for the good that they can do to others, but always in it for what others can do for them. And so Paul provides three points, if you will, that humbles them. He loves them enough to humble the proud people, but proud people rarely yield. Proud people very rarely yield. 
They always need to win. They always need to come out on top. And so this kind of text often gets people angry, makes them want to leave the church, makes them lash out at the church father loving them enough to call out their pride because people who are proud hate, 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 hate anyone pointing out the obvious reality of their pride. And so this is good for us because you and I are proud. And God even loves proud people. You know that Jesus even died for proud people. There's no greater sin in the Bible than pride. All of the sexual immorality in our world is nothing compared to your pride, my pride. All of the craziness going on in government is nothing compared to your and my pride. Pride is, as we all know, the root of all sin. It's the first sin. It's the chief sin. And yet God loves us enough to send us unto die for even our pride. But, but Paul is dealing with their pride. He does it in three ways, and he's very fatherly about it. He's, 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 he's direct, but, but kind in it. But let me first, before we get into the three ways, let's just look at the last line. Jesus is Lord. I want to kind of begin right now and close with that later. Jesus is Lord. Isn't that good news? I don't know that there's any more comforting, more thrilling statement in all of Scripture than, than this one. Jesus is Lord. Right? Jesus is Lord. He is the King. He is ruling. In Psalm chapter 2, God deals with the rebellion of the nations by setting his king on the holy mountain that oversees all the world and he rules. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ took on flesh, died in place for sinful man, rose from the dead and ascended to that place from which he has been ruling over all things on heaven and earth, with all authority given to him by the Father who created all things from then on and for all time. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord. And this is the fundamental confession that makes Christianity Christian. This is the essence of it. This is the beginning and end, the whoop and the wharf, the A to Z. Jesus is Lord. You're not a Christian if you do not believe that or don't live in that way. Jesus is Lord. And you'll see in this text that there's only two realities. Jesus is Lord. And if you believe that, if that's your life, then you're his. And if you don't, if that's not your life, then you're not. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. And this is the thing that you and I have to get through our heads There aren't Christians and then those who hate Christians and those who are kind of in the middle somewhere and we're trying to reach those people. You're either for him or against him. You're either on his side or opposed to him. You either love him or you hate him. There's no middle ground. 
That's what Paul is setting up here, and he's speaking of the church. And we know in this age, the church is going to be made up of a whole bunch of people who confess Christ and a whole bunch of people who take the supper. And yet there are always going to be people within the visible gathering of the church who say they love Jesus but do not. And they live their lives for themselves to satisfy their own desires in rebellion against the church, not loving the church, not caring for the church, hating those in the church that God sets in authority over them and consistently rebel and rebel and rebel, even though they say they love Jesus and everybody sees them as good Christian people. And that's what Paul's dealing with here in this church. And we should have the faith to believe it about ourselves too. But let's not forget that Jesus is Lord over that. And he's our Lord, and he's king. I hope that comforts you in this season. Because our world is in turmoil. Jesus is Lord. It's not even but. The Lord Jesus has brought this turmoil for our good. That we might not set our hopes in this world, that we might not set our hopes in the things of this world, but on him. Isn't it easier to receive those three words, Jesus is Lord now, when everything looks like it's sliding away? That's what he's teaching you and I. And along with that then, because of our pride, Paul teaches us three very helpful things. In verse one, he tells them they're uninformed. You know what proud people think they know? Everything. (laughs) Proud people think they know everything. Remember the, the, I probably shouldn't bring this up that I've watched this show. Maybe I could say it was before I was a Christian. And that would help you. Cheers, remember Cheers? Who was who the most proud person in the show Cheers? Cliff Clavin. Because he knew everything. He was the most insufferable, intolerable, cringeworthy person because he knew everything. Remember that? That was insufferable. Proud people think they know everything, especially the Corinthians. Paul shows throughout this entire letter, they think they know everything. They think they're the most informed, theologically astute, right of all right Christians who have ever been right. And Paul has the audacity to tell them they're ignorant. That's what the word is there. The ESV uses the word uninformed because it's nicer. In older translations, they dared to use the word ignorant. They're ignorant. They don't know something. Isn't that humbling? In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul thanked God that these Corinthians didn't lack any spiritual gift the very thing that he's going to spend the next three chapters rebuking them on. (laughs) They're a very gifted church. The Spirit of God is bestowed on them great gifts, but they're very ignorant in what they're for. Can I... Do you think you're like that? I think our day, maybe because of social media especially in this COVID season, 
you see one headline. You don't even read the article. You just see the headline. I'm using the word you now. You just see the headline and suddenly you're an expert. You know everything about COVID because you've read a headline on Facebook. You know which masks work and which masks don't because you've read a headline. <laughs> That's not you though, right? And isn't that us? We just pride ourselves on how ignorant we are. And, and, and Paul is humbling us to help us realize that there are things we don't know. There are things we don't know about those things that we think we do know. And Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So what are they uninformed about? What are they ignorant about? Well, spiritual gifts. Now, again, there's a little footnote there. The Greek there is just the word spiritual. It doesn't say spiritual gifts. The footnote typically in the Bible says, or spiritual persons. It doesn't say persons. It just leaves it spiritual. It just says, now concerning spiritual, spiritual things, things of the Holy Spirit, they're ignorant about things of the Holy Spirit. They're, th- they're ignorant about living spiritually. They're ignorant about living according to the ways and things of the Spirit. If there's one thing that we want to be informed about, it's that, isn't it? If there's one thing that you want to be informed about, it's about living spiritually. I think this should be convicting to us. We are sometimes so very careful about important things, but physical things. Things that are temporal, short-term. We're very careful to know the ins and the outs of these things. That's good and it's right, but yet we're too often a lot less careful to be informed, thoughtful, careful, invested in the things of eternal, spiritual, things of God. That's the first thing that humbles. And the second is, verse 2, they have been led astray. They've been snookered, hoodwinked. Again, proud people never think they've taken a wrong turn. Have you ever driven, been driven by somebody who's proud? They think they know more than Siri. (laughs) They never take a wrong turn. My wife would say that that I'm never wrong when I'm driving. You never think you're led astray. You can't be led astray. When you're proud, Paul says, no, you remember, back when you were pagans, by the, word, the, or by the way, the word pagan there isn't nice. Paul doesn't mean that as a, just an objective description. It's, uh, it's derogatory. It's not intended as a compliment. Pagan in the Bible is related to uncircumcised, unclean, dirty. By the way, when you were dirty, When you were unclean, 
when you were not welcome to the Lord's table because you were dirty, we might, well, I don't, I don't want to go there. Um, when, when you were pagans, you, you had a, a ring through your nose and you were led. <laughs> you weren't in control. You didn't know where you were going and you were led astray. They were duped. They worshipped false gods that couldn't even talk. Kids, you know what the word there actually for mute is? If you're deaf, what can't you do? Kids, if you're deaf, what can't you do? Here. If you're blind, what can't you do? See, and if you're dumb, what can't you do? Talk. You think the word dumb is something that you tell one of your siblings when your parents aren't listening to put them down. To be dumb means to be unable to speak. The gods they worshipped were unable to say anything. And they worshipped them. <laughs> so Paul is humbling them. This is what we are by nature. We're gullible. It's humbling So I think this is helpful to us. This reminds us of what we were before Christ, of what we are in Adam. So Paul's doing. Here we have the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of humanity apart from Christ. We forget that before the grace of God, we lived in a pit and thought it was a palace. We were content to play in a dirty mud puddle thinking we were on white sand at the sea. We were duped. We thought we were clean, but we weren't. We were vile. We worshipped things that couldn't speak and thought that they would bring us life and they only brought us death. And so Paul is reminding them of what they were before Christ that they might be ready to hear of the grace of God again. Now, a lot of our kids are, aren't growing up such that, God willing, that their testimony won't have this horrific past. That's what we hope for our children. We want to raise them where they don't have a testimony of utter destruction. And then they became Christians. And so they're going to need to know that in Adam, this is what they are. So kids, in Adam, you, you are, apart from Christ, a pig in a pig pen. You're, you, you worship mud and filth. You have to realize this about yourself. You have to have the faith to admit that you aren't good. Because sometimes we can kind of snooty as Christians. We can get kind of caught up in what we are now and think it's because of us. Think that our inherent goodness is finally coming out. But we aren't. We're saved by grace. That's the third humbling reality in verse 3. We're saved by grace. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one could say, Jesus, Lord, except in the Spirit. So before they were Christians, they just cursed Jesus. Some of you work in workplaces where 
our Lord's name is used rather creatively. That's an overflow of the heart. They hate him, and so did you. And how did you ever come to the place of no longer being an enemy of Christ, no longer thinking little of him, but now saying he's Lord, and I love him, and I want to obey and submit to him and everything, and I can't wait to have him return, and I love him so much that I'm going to gather with his people on a weekly basis to celebrate his resurrection from the dead. How did that ever happen? By God's Spirit. Can I ask you, do you have a quibble with that verse? Do you have a quibble with that statement? No one can ever say Jesus is Lord except in or by the Holy Spirit. Do you like that? Because what is that saying? Well, it's saying what I think Mike probably taught in his Ephesians class this morning. How many of you were in Mike's Ephesians class? What did his Ephesians chapter 1 say about who saved you? And when did he do that? Before the foundation of the world. So chapter 3 is saying the only reason that you ever said Jesus is Lord, the only reason that you ever with your life want to submit everything to Jesus is by the Holy Spirit and not at all by you. God is sovereign over your salvation. And sometimes the way you quibble with it is, you, you read this and say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit, and then you want to add on, well, yes, and my free will. Like you immediately want to make sure that human free will is included in this. Yeah, of course, you need to repent and believe the gospel. But the only reason that way that you repent and believe the gospel is when the Holy Spirit comes and frees your will, rebirthing you, so that you now have a new heart that longs to, wants to, desires to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. So we do have to be clear, if you do not repent and believe in the gospel, you will go to hell and you are not in Christ. And yet the only reason that you will ever repent in the gospel is by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that humbling to you? Who saved you? Christ did. Jesus himself says in John 6, 64, no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. You cannot come unless the Father brings you. Or in Acts 13.46, when Paul is preaching to the pagans, just like them, many rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord, and then it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or again, in John chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit teaches us that all who receive Christ by faith, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, redundant, three times to make sure that you and I realize it's not you, but of God. It's humbling. We're ignorant. Let us stray easily to idols that 
can't even talk, and we're saved all by the grace of God. And if you don't really get those first two, you'll never appreciate the grace of God for what it is. Grace. It's free. He does it. It's love. It's given. Must be received. And what is our salvation? It's that Jesus is Lord. That's it. The word Lord here is very interesting. God first revealed his name to uh, Moses as Yahweh. Remember that? And when the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, the word in Greek that they translated Yahweh into is this one. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. That's the fundamental Christian confession. Jesus is the one true living God. Jesus is the eternal, uncreated, the one who has being in himself, the one who exists from all time and for all time, the one who knows everything, can do all things. The Alpha and the Mega, Jesus is God. That's what this is. Jesus is the creator in Genesis 1. Jesus is the redeemer who destroyed Pharaoh in Egypt and led his people out. Jesus is the one who conquered the promised land and brought his people in. Uh, answer, sorry, I'm not stuttering. I'm searching for words. My brain isn't working. He, he is the one who filled all the promises God had made to them. Jesus is that God. Jesus is the one reigning and ruling over all of heaven and earth, over all of time. Jesus is the one working all things now in history for his glory and for the good of his people. Jesus is the God who return one day and set up his kingdom and destroy all of his enemies and grant you to live with him on his recreated earth for all time. Jesus is that God. That's what Paul is saying here. Jesus is God. All right, kids, I have another illustration for you. Uh, Lion King first came out when I think I was in high school. I believe it was 1994. Is that right? Anybody know? I think it was early 90s. And it was cool. I liked it. And I liked the Backstreet Boys for a little while. <laughs> I don't anymore. And uh, it's recently been re-released. Have you seen it? It's pretty good. Not as good as the first one, because remakes are never good as the original. And you remember that part when the hyenas are messing around and they say the name Mufasa, and all of the other hyenas kind of shake and they quiver. And then he says it again in there. Ooh, remember that? Why? Because Mufasa is power. Mufasa's authority, because Mufasa's justice, because Mufasa is death to them if they wrong him. That's what Jesus' name is. It's power, it's authority, it's justice, it's death to his enemies, but life to his friends. 
Jesus is the division between dark and light, where the hyenas dwell and where his subjects dwell. Jesus is everything. And to say Jesus is Lord in that day, in that place, in that Roman Empire was to turn your back on Caesar. Was to turn your back on all of the Roman gods. Was to welcome death. Why would you say it then? Because it's true. Because it's true. Because Caesar isn't Lord. And the Roman gods are dumb. And the things of this world will pass away. And the thing that you want more than Christ will never satisfy. And the hope you put in President Trump will never be fulfilled. The desire you have for the new justice to be installed will never, ever actually be met. Because Jesus is Lord. And your happiness, your desires, your longings are fulfilled only in Him, in His kingdom. And in nothing else. That's why you say it. That's why you live it. By say here, He doesn't mean just speaking it. You could teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. He means life. He means everything, all in. And you cannot say that apart from the Holy Spirit. You won't want him apart from the Holy Spirit. So let me close like this. When he says, no one can say Jesus, Lord, except in the Holy Spirit, and that sometimes grates against you. It grates against you because you're proud. But let me ask you something. That's speaking to God's authority, correct? God has the authority and the right to bring whoever he wants to himself and to, and to allow whoever he desires to continue in their rebellion. He's using that authority to save. He used that authority to so work in you that you now love to say Jesus is Lord. He's using his authority. He's exercising his authority, his divine authority. Isn't that a good use of authority? All the ways that authority are abused on this earth by civil leaders and fathers and mothers and church leaders and it's disheartening and it's destructive. And here, the authority of all authorities is flexing his divine muscle to save worms like us. And we get mad at talking about God's authority. And look at what he's using his authority for. To bring you to his son. To wash you clean of all your sin. To guarantee you an inheritance with all the saints in heaven for all time. How about we just say thanks? How about we just be unthinkably grateful for the Father's authority over our salvation? How about we sing psalms and hymns of praise instead of debating and arguing endlessly about whether to emphasize God's sovereignty or my free will? How about we just say thank you? Let's pray.
<clears throat> Father, we do give you thanks for humbling us, give you thanks for saving us. It's all your grace. It's all your might. We have nothing apart from you, and yet in you, and you bringing us to your Son by your Spirit, we have all things, and so we give you thanks. God, please do humble our pride. Please teach us to be more considerate and kind and thoughtful and gentle towards others. Please teach us to live under your Son's authority in all the authorities under him that you've given us in this life. Because he is Lord. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Consider asking someone who knows you and loves you best where pride may be most evident in your life. Paul is humbling their pride. And so I would, I would encourage you, charge you to ask somebody who loves you where it's most evident. And then just take your pride to Christ. Take your pride to him who humbled himself on the cross to save you from your pride. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.